Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Whether you're uh, here for the first time or whether you are a foundation regular, I'm so glad uh, that you've decided to tune in to this online service this afternoon. Well, we're into week two of a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which Eileen just read to us from. And by way of introduction and a quick reminder of what we looked at last week, we said that Ecclesiastes uh, was written by King Solomon. He was a smart, wealthy, influential king, more so possibly than any other nation's ruler before or since. And in the first 11 verses, he, he spoke to us and, and taught us using illustrations from nature uh, that actually our eyes and ears are never fully satisfied, that though we go on consuming experiences in this life, there is nothing under the sun, or what he means by that is that we can see, touch, hear, smell, taste, that will ever fully satisfy us, that actually all of humanity has a, has a longing inside, a, a hunger inside that cannot be satisfied by anything underneath the sun. And today in the verses that Eileen's just read to us, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, actually moves on from uh, this kind of abstract, poetic way of speaking to actually talk about his own personal search for meaning, uh, and not using kind of his observations of nature, but actually now talking about his own bitter experience of searching for meaning in life. He, he moves from abstract analogies into concrete personal experiences, where his opening poem talked about the rise and setting of the sun and the, the water cycle. Uh, now he actually says, guys, look, this is what I did. <laughs> this is my experience. This was my search for meaning, and this is what I found. And so we're going to take some time this afternoon to, to unpack that together and to see how it might help us as we learn from the teacher of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon. So first up, what does he say? He tells us that he tried to find meaning in learning, in education. He applied himself to learning as much as he could, to growing in knowledge. As he writes in verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Now remember, Solomon was respected and revered, renowned for his extraordinary God-given wisdom and understanding. And he says, I took that wisdom that God gave me, that great understanding and insight that he'd given me, and I applied it to, to learning, to, 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 to study, to, to getting as much knowledge as I could, to being as smart as I could. And, and trust me, however clever you are, however much you've learned, it is highly unlikely that you manage to get as far in your learning as King Solomon did. And he said, I'm going to do this to see if that's where meaning can be found. And what did he discover? Well, as we read on, he says this, I've seen all things. 
that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon writes about the fact basically that the more he learned, the more he observed how messed up the world was. It's like the more I know, the more I see what a broken mess surrounds me everywhere. Knowing more actually just opened his eyes to the brokenness around him. And he says in verse 18, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. It's like it doesn't matter how much you learn, how much you know. Actually, that just means you see the, the brokenness around you. And however much you attempt to apply your learning, your intellect, all of your reasoning, you won't actually find satisfaction. And what's worse, you'll discover that there are some big problems in the world. What's crooked can't be straightened out. And that just leads to frustration. Yeah, I mean, people have applied their learning to accomplishing great things. Truly great things. I mean, we look at advances in, in medicine, and you think, well, it's incredible. People have applied their learning to accomplishing great things that have gone some way to addressing the brokenness and the issues we find in the world, but it doesn't actually ever fully address the root problem. And that's because the Bible teaches us that, that God created the world perfect. We read at the beginning in Genesis that God created the world without blemish, without defect. I mean, perfect. But as mankind rebelled against God, turned their backs on him, rejected him, and as sin entered the world, along with it came sickness and suffering and death. See, the world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We can see that, can't we? You, you can see that. You know that to be true. There is something not right with this world. But try as we might, however much we've learned and understood, we cannot, in our own strength and learning and intellect, fully fix it. As Solomon observed, he said, what is crooked cannot be straightened. And that is very frustrating and not fulfilling. That is not where meaning can be found. So what else did he try? We read from verse 16. He says, I, looked, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. But we have just read that that was frustrating. That, that didn't work, did it? He says, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned too, this is a chasing after the wind. Look, he was wiser and smarter than anyone before or since. And that wasn't the answer. So he decided, well, hey, look, I am on a quest for meaning. And if that isn't the answer, I'm going to go right to the other end of the spectrum. And so he applied himself to madness and folly. It's like, like man, I've tried highbrow. I've read all the books. It didn't work. What if I go 
lowbrow. I mean, I'm just going to make reckless decisions, like stuff the consequences. I don't need to think stuff through. I'm just going to go for it. What then? Well, he says, no, that too is just like chasing the wind. You, you don't get anywhere. It doesn't help. It's literally a fool's errand. It will not satisfy you. It does not work. So Solomon's working down his list in his search for meaning. He begins with study and learning, being the intellectual, and says, well, that, that didn't bring the meaning I was hoping for. Well, and neither did taking leave of his senses and giving way to madness and folly. So where does he go next? Well, next, let's give pleasure a go. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, come now. So I think this is such a hilarious line. I don't know. I could just like Solomon saying to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. You just think, this is slightly bizarre and slightly amusing. But he's, he's saying, look, intellect, that didn't work. Madness and folly, no good. Pleasure. Let's give that a go. Is that where I'm going to find meaning? And the truth is, in one way or another, we all try this too in our search for meaning, right? And it's the fact that we do that makes advertising so powerful and so compelling because advertising taps into this desire for pleasure. And it, and it speaks right into it. It tells us that that is the answer. That is where we will find satisfaction. And so it says... If you could experience this pleasure, this holiday, what, what this product will bring to you and do for you, if you could feel the rush of doing this here, if you could feel the, the surge of adrenaline or the, the, the pleasure of the adoration of people as you drive past them in that car or on that bike, then you'd be content. You'd be fulfilled. Advertising says, fill up your senses and you'll be happy. And for many of us, actually that, happiness, is the pursuit of life. It's what we think the meaning of life is really all about. Being happy. In everything we do, we're driven by this desire to be happy. We judge things on this measure. Should I do it or not? Well, you know, if it makes you happy. People have written songs about it. You're probably singing it in your head now. <laughs> if it makes you happy. Well, remember, Solomon, who recorded this exploration for us here, was a super, I mean, mind-bogglingly ridiculously rich beyond imagination. I mean, the guy that owns Amazon, was it Jeff Bozos or something? Like, think him multiplied beyond you can imagine. Then we're getting somewhere close to Solomon's wealth. Anything he wanted, he could get it. So when he tries indulging his senses to find happiness and meaning and fulfillment, he goes all out. All out. And so we read about it from verse 3. We're going to move through and see what he tried in this quest. He says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. 
I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. But look, alcohol seems a popular one. Seems like maybe this is it. (laughs) I'll give that a go. Maybe you've tried that. And maybe like Solomon, you'll discover it really doesn't lead to the place you think it might do. Yeah, maybe in a moment. But soon enough, you're waking up. You feel rough. (laughs) How do I shift this hangover? This seemed like a great idea last night. Not so much today. It carries on. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water gro- uh, to water groves of flourishing trees. He applied his skills and his knowledge and invested his money in big development, big building projects, beautiful homes to live in and to enjoy, amazing, stunning parkland to to walk through and to marvel at and to, to delight himself in, to drink in the beauty of those things. He carries on. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Solomon had a vast army of people who were devoted to bringing him and doing for him whatever he pleased. He was a man who, if he wanted, could be at perfect leisure, being waited on hand and foot. Maybe you think that sounds appealing. That sounds to you like I would be quite fulfilled if that were the case. (laughs) He carries on. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon went in big when it came to stuff. Like I said, he was ludicrously wealthy and he just amassed it. These huge piles of jewels and gold and wealth as well as herds and flocks that you just couldn't possibly begin to imagine, displays of his wealth and status. He carries on. I acquired male and female singers. He tried out the arts. Is that where meaning is to be found? In, in music, in the arts. Many of us would look for meaning and and happiness in in that kind of a place. He carries on. And a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. Solomon had a large number, a, a worryingly large number, but a large number of beautiful women who were in his palace solely for his pleasure and enjoyment. I mean, many men throughout history have thought, this sounds great. But was it the answer? Did it satisfy him? Well, 
We don't have to wait long to find out. Solomon's going to tell us. We can read on from verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I mean, some of you think, like, that sounds great. Like, no restraint, anything I want, I'm going for it. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. He's like, I deserved it. Come on. I'm the king. I worked for this. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Like Solomon went all out on his pleasure quest. He explored every avenue. He applied his senses to taking it all in and in great quantity. He denied himself nothing that his eyes desired. If he wanted it, he had it. He says this was the reward for his toil. He's like, I worked hard for this. I applied my wisdom and my learning and I established this mighty kingdom and I set out to enjoy everything I'd worked for. How often we can think like this, can't we? Again, advertising taps into this in us. It's like, go on. You've earned it. You deserve it. Go on, treat yourself. You're entitled to it. You deserve it. But did it work? No. After all of that, Solomon still concludes it was meaningless. It was insubstantial. It was, it was hollow. We talked about it last week as that word meaningless being like a, 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 a kind of vapor or a fleeting breath. It's like you, you can't grab hold of it. It's like the, the candle when you, uh, uh, the smoke when you snuff out a candle. It's, I mean, it's real enough. It's there, but you try and grasp hold of it and it's gone and it doesn't last long before there's nothing left. Huh. So where else could he look? He's gone learning, intellect, stuff the consequences, recklessness, folly, pleasure. I'm going to drink it all in. Where is left to go? Well, he, he circles back around and he, he doubles down on wisdom and folly. This time, his focus isn't so much on, on learning, on academia, on studies, but instead on, on wisdom, on, on making wise choices. And finally, finally, he seems to get somewhere. We read from verse 12, he says, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. He says, I've, I've tried them out. I'm just going to think about the fruit of those two ways of life that I've tried out. Well, what more can the king's successor do than what has already been done. I saw that wisdom is better than folly. Ah, if something is better than something else, it's not just all kind of flat, meaningless nothingness. Wisdom is better than folly. Just as light is better than darkness, the wise have eyes in their heads, while the fools walk in the darkness. Wisdom is 
is better than folly. At last we think, yes, Solomon, some kind of bright note somewhere in here. Okay, yes, wisdom. Wisdom is good, right? We need to be wise. That's what this is about. And just as we think we're getting into the good news, Solomon continues and says, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also, and then what do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. He's talking about the fleetingness, the the brevity of life, the fact that it doesn't endure. He carries on, the days have already come when both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And you think, oh, like Solomon, come on. Like, give me a break. There's got to be something here. It's like wisdom may be a better way of living your life, but in the end, it doesn't actually make the kind of ultimate difference that we might hope it would. Because, as Solomon bluntly points out, life isn't that long in the grand scheme, and we're all going to die. <laughs> Thanks, Solomon. So the acquisition and application of knowledge is not the answer in the search for meaning. I mean, he really tried it. But being reckless and just living with abandon is also not the answer. Drinking in every experience and pleasure we can get doesn't work either. And although wisdom is better than folly, it still isn't the way to meaning because we all die in the end. Solomon isn't quite done with the summary of his quest for meaning, though. He's yet to appraise work for us. Perhaps work is where meaning is to be found. Is meaning found in applying your time and energy to work towards something, to accomplish something of value? Well, let's see what he has to say. So I hated my life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me, and all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun all their days? Their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Oh, uh, right. Not work then, Solomon, no? <laughs> you know, in the light of his realization about death coming to us all, he says, 
do you know what, guys? There is really no lasting satisfaction in work either. In fact, it's actually, when you think about it, very, very frustrating if that's where you're hoping to find meaning, if that's where you're pinning your hopes, if, that's, if your desire to find fulfilment is resting in work, then you are in for a hiding because however great your accomplishments are, however much progress you make, however big you build your empire, however successful you make your business, in the end, you're going to die. And who knows what idiot might come along and ruin all your hard work. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I, I admit, it's a fairly bleak view of it. I mean, you might have someone else who comes and does a better job than you, but Solomon's like, come on! Like, I have slogged my guts out for this. He says, towards the end of it, he says, you know, the, the, the task, uh, he says, all the day of their work is grief and pain. He's like, it's, it's tough, it's hard work. Even at night, their minds do not rest. He's like, you stay awake at night sweating over business decisions and stewing to make the right call, to try and do the right thing. And in the end, who knows who you're going to hand it over to and they're just going to squander the lot anyway. What is the point? Like, even if you don't push it out as far as death, maybe some of you have experienced actually something of this feeling. <laughs> maybe you've worked hard in a career and come to the point of retirement and you now look on at your successor and you just think, oh, no. I've known people who sadly, honestly look at their children and have thought, I worry for what's going to happen to all of this that we've built up. Perhaps you've started a business or led out on a project or a team at work, and when the time comes to hand it on, you're so invested in it. You know what it's meant to, to stay up at night, stewing over decisions. You've, you've worked long hours, and when it comes to that time to hand it over, you feel like you're, you're handing over a baby, like it's, this is something precious, valuable to you. You've lost sleep over it. You've slogged your guts out to make it happen. You've sacrificed to get it where it is now. And man, the person you have to hand it over to, like seriously, if they screw it up, like, <laughs> it's like, ah. Oh. Some of us can identify with that feeling that Solomon writes about here. And so Solomon concludes Placing your hope in work to fulfill you is ultimately going to lead to frustration and it doesn't work. See, what Solomon wants to get across loud and clear to us is this. He's like, guys, seriously, trust me, I've tried everything and I've done it more than you I've done it better than you, I've done it bigger than you, and it's not the answer. Please let me save you the heartache. It isn't the answer. And we hear him, and we can be tempted to think, well, you know what? This is just Solomon's issue. I mean, this guy's messed up. It's just his issue. Like, what's his problem? If I had everything he had, I would be happy. Like, and maybe you're thinking that right now. You think, like, is the guy kidding? Like, king, wealth, women, wine, everything he wants. Like, if I had that, maybe that's what you're thinking. Well, 
I want to say, really? <laughs> Here are some words from other people who, like Solomon, although to a lesser extent, have, have pretty well had it all. Jim Carrey, comedian, actor, wealthy, famous, successful, adored by millions, said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of. Why? So they can see that it's not the answer. Ah, (laughs) he's saying the same as Solomon. Or how about John Mayer? A very rich and successful singer-songwriter adored by millions who at a concert in front of over 7,000 adoring fans in 2008, there are 7,000 people in a massive theater, the Nokia Theater in LA, screaming his name, adoring him. And he says this, I've tried every approach to living. I've tried. I've tried it all. I haven't tried everything, but I've tried every approach. Sometimes you have to try everything to get the approach the same, but I've tried it all. I bought a bunch of stuff and went, nah, I don't like that. I kind of came in and out of that a couple of times. I thought I would shut myself off. I thought maybe that's cool. Maybe what you have to do to be a genius is you have to be mad. So if you get mad before the word genius, then maybe you can make genius appear, right? That doesn't work either. I'm in a good place. I'm 30. I've seen some cool stuff. I made a lot of stuff happen for myself. Does any of this sound familiar? I mean, it sounds like he's quoting King Solomon almost. And he carries on. I made a lot of stuff happen for myself, right? That's a really cool sentence when you're in your 20s. I made it happen for myself. But all that means is that I've somehow or another found a way to synthesize love or synthesize soothing. And what I'm saying is that I've messed with all the approaches except for one. And it's going to sound really corny, but that's just love. I've done everything in my life that I wanted to do except just one. Give and feel love. So I'm going to experiment with this love thing. Giving love, feeling love. I know it sounds corny, but it's the last thing I've got to check out before I check out. You see, Solomon isn't unique. And I think he would actually say to John Mayer, like, man, you're getting there. Like, you're close, but you're not quite there Yet, there's something else you haven't tried. Because after all of this meaningless, meaningless, nothing works, nothing is fulfilling talk that Solomon has given us, he now gives us the first glorious chink of light in his search. He drops in here his first genuinely hopeful remark on this search for meaning. And he writes in verses 24 and 25, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand 
of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Guys, don't miss what he said there. He said, we should enjoy this life. Don't rely on it to find meaning, but we should enjoy it. There is enjoyment to be found in eating and drinking and the satisfaction of a good day's work. But, and this is the critical piece, happiness actually comes not through striving, but through God's gift. It actually comes in seeing ourselves as we are. Solomon says, doesn't he? He says, I see is from the hand of God. Without him, who can find enjoyment? Happiness comes in seeing ourselves as dependent creatures made for relationship with our Creator. We're not self-sufficient. You're not self-sufficient. We need God. All that we have that is good and enjoyable is a gift from Him. And we should enjoy it as a gift from Him. Life itself is a gift. The breath you're breathing right now is a gift from our Creator. And we should see it and enjoy it as such. See, when you believe that the the good things are your right or your reward, then actually we get it all backwards. And we try to hold on to them so tightly and we, we... try to ask them to fulfill us, to give us meaning, to complete us, to validate our existence, to confirm that we're making something of our lives because we've earned it. Or as John Mayer would say, I made it happen for myself. Then, when we lose them, or when we realise that they're not as good as we hoped, or when something better comes along that we don't yet, have, well then we get disillusioned or we fall into despair. But if we see them as a gift from our creator, then actually we can truly enjoy them. We recognize that they can't and don't bring what they promise. And actually that's okay. (laughs) This thing, it's not actually going to make me happy in a long-term way. This relationship is not actually going to fulfill me the way I want it to. And that's okay. We stop expecting them to do what they can't. And we enjoy them instead for what they are. A gift from God. Understanding all of life as a gift from God and growing in gratitude in Him is vital. It changes things. It's actually incredibly liberating. But Solomon isn't finished just yet. The really good news is about to come. He writes, To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. What we're longing for, what we're searching for, he says, to the person who pleases God, God gives it as a gift to them. Who is it that finds lasting fulfillment? Who eventually gets all that we're searching for? The person who pleases God. Ah, okay. Solomon, we've got somewhere. Okay, so how do we please God? Now you might be thinking, here goes. (laughs) Yep, this is what I expected from church. Here come the rules. Here's all the stuff you've got to do to please God. Come on, what do I have to do? What is it? Go to church? 
Read my Bible. Obey the rules. Say the right things, not say the wrong things. Give money to charity. Give money to church. Do I have to do that? Is that what pleases God? Come on. What is it? What do we need to do? Well, Solomon doesn't actually tell us. But we find the answer in the rest of Scripture. How do we please God? We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is the key. Faith in God, seeking him earnestly, trusting him to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, placing all the weight of our hope, not in work or relationships or stuff, but instead in him recognizing that everything comes from his hands and delighting in him. And in him, we find forgiveness. In him, we find our way back home. We're welcomed into relationship with him. Welcomed into the presence of God. You see, lasting fulfillment, true joy, life, in all its fullness, is not actually found in the having or not having of things. It's found in knowing God. You were made for relationship with your Creator. You were made to to be in His presence and to enjoy relationship with Him. And those who have faith in Him who accept and follow God, will ultimately receive what we are all searching for. God himself is the gift. He's the treasure. It's not actually about what he can give us. It's about him. You see, some people make the gift of God about the good things he can add to their life, here and now. (laughs) Like, I'll follow God, and when I follow God, he'll add stuff to me. He'll make me healthy and wealthy and prosperous and victorious. They miss the point. Others look forward to the good things God will give us in eternity when Christ returns and makes all things new, where there'll be no sickness, no suffering, no pain, no death, etc., etc. And those are truly good things. They really are. And we will receive them when we trust in him, but they are not actually the most important thing. The Bible is clear. The best thing about heaven, real delight, true satisfaction, is that God will presence himself with his people and that we'll see him and know him and be with him forever. We read in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13 that right now we see him We see the glory and goodness of God as though we're looking at a dim reflection in a beat-up mirror, as though we're looking through a dirty, cracked window. But then, then we will see him face to face in all his glory. And oh, what a day that will be. And for all eternity, such is his beauty Such is his glory that you will never grow tired of being in his presence. 
We will never find an end of delighting in him. What are you looking to to satisfy you? Anything and everything you try apart from Jesus will leave you hungry and searching. Jesus said of himself in John 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He doesn't say, I have the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, I'll give it to them. No, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, I will give them me. I will give of myself. Jesus is it. Knowing and delighting in God, in Christ is the prize. He isn't a means to an end. It's not like come to God so he can give you the good things. No. Come to God and find your fulfillment in him. I mean, he will give you good things too. And we can enjoy those. But man, they pale into insignificance by comparison with the giver have them or don't have them, actually it doesn't really matter because you already have a relationship with your creator and that is more valuable and more satisfying and more meaningful than anything else you could possibly imagine. Guys, I want to encourage you today. Whatever you are checking out to try and find meaning, whatever you're trying to make happen for yourself to try and find fulfillment, I want to encourage you today. Have faith. Look to God. Trust in Him. Put all your hope in Him to save you and forgive you and fulfill you and secure you in His presence for eternity. Delight in Him. Find your joy in Him. Ask Him to fill you. Look on Him in His beauty. And let everything else be in its right place by comparison. Enjoy it, yes, as a gift from your gracious creator. But recognize that he is the greatest gift. Remember this. Above and beyond anything else. Jesus came to restore relationship with God. That's why he came to make it possible for us to be united with our creator, and in him and him alone can you be truly satisfied, both for now and all eternity. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to hand back over to the worship team for one final song. Jesus, we thank you that you came, and at the cross, you decisively, once and for all, took on yourself our sin and our shame And you owned it as though it were your own and you paid the price for it. You took it to the grave. The wages of sin is death and you took that wage on our behalf. What we'd earned for ourselves, you took and you paid it fully. And you rose again, conquering death, conquering the grave that we might, if we trust in you, if we hope in you, might also be raised again to new life to intimacy with God, to know the joy and delight 
now and everlasting of being in relationship with you. Jesus, you are the bread of life, the one who satisfies our hunger, our search for meaning, our longing for fulfillment we know is found in you. Lord, we come to you again now and we say we put our hope in you. We put our trust in you. Would you forgive us? Would you save us? Would you sustain us? And would you help us to see you as you are? More glorious, more beautiful, more gracious, and ultimately far, far, far more fulfilling than anyone or anything else. Amen.